Turn with me in your Bibles to two passages this morning, Matthew 22 and uh, Ephesians 3. I'll be using these passages uh, some in the sermon. This is our second in a series now on the Ten Commandments, and the second of three uh, sermons are introductory to the Ten Commandments, just considering how, how should we think about God's law, uh, how do we use it, how do we interpret it, uh, what is it, what is it not. Um, last week we considered the law as a, a revelation of God's character, of God himself. Uh, in one sense, God is his law, he is the, the commandments. Um, we considered law as intimately connected to grace, um, part of his gift of grace to us. Uh, I, I'd encourage you, if you, if you weren't here last week or didn't, didn't hear that one, I, I don't uh, usually say something like this, but I, I feel like there's some crucial pieces in, in what we considered last week to understanding the Ten Commandments and God's law. I'd encourage you to listen to that. But let's begin this morning with uh, Matthew 22, beginning in verse 34. Hear God's holy word. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And then we'll turn also over to Ephesians 3, beginning in verse, verse 14. Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of, of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I'll end our reading there. I was recently reading on a, a website that compiled some accounts of people from a number of years ago who had just blindly followed their uh, Garmin GPS in their car uh, into funny or, or disastrous uh, ends. Uh, one lady who lived in, in Brussels, um, she was going to pick up a friend who was coming into a train station. She didn't know where, she hadn't been to the train station before. It happened to be on the other side of Brussels, but she blindly followed her GPS uh, all the way until she ended up in the capital of Croatia, which is where she stopped to consider maybe this isn't right. And if you, if you know some of your European geography, that took her all the way down through Germany, uh, through Austria, through Slovenia. She drove all night, filled up her car two times. And then figured something wasn't right. Another guy uh, drove off the road onto a fit path through the woods and ended up stuck on a cliff, uh, blindly following his GPS, insisting that was the way he was to go. 
Uh, There's an important principle related to law, including the Ten Commandments. And that is you have to know how it's supposed to apply, how it's supposed to work. Uh, How are we supposed to use it? We'll see that one way God's law functions is as a map, as a, as a GPS, if you will, but there's, there's more to it, and we need to have some clear understanding of, of how it works in that way. How is the function in our lives, and, and how is it not? We considered that a bit last week. Um, if we can use God's law as it's intended for our good and for his glory. So again this week, I want to take up two questions uh, as our outline, and and. Just state up front sort of the main takeaway that I want you to have from today, which is that the law shows us the depth of our sin and of our need. And also by implication, then, it shows us the depth of God's grace and his love. So taking up this first question, uh, which commands should I follow? Which commands should I follow? There's a a book written by a couple of lawyers, the the Book of Strange and Curious Legal Oddities, and uh, among other things, it lists uh, some laws that are actually, lists and confirms, because sometimes these things are shared and may not be accurate, but but laws that are still accurately on the books, um, actually on the books in in places across the U.S. So in, in Missouri, there's a place where it says on the books that it's illegal to drive in your car with an uncaged bear in the car. Um, a, a town in Oklahoma, it's illegal to make faces at someone else's dog, uh, unfortunately. Uh, in Michigan, there's a town, it's illegal for a woman to cut her hair in the summer without her husband's permission. No comment. Uh, North Dakota, there's a town where it's illegal to throw candy from a float in a parade. And, and the point of all of these is that they are, they're unknown now and they're ignored laws. And, and sometimes Christians are accused of and mocked for supposedly doing the same thing. So there are, the Old Testament commands purification after touching a dead body. Uh, it commands the, the death penalty for adultery and, and so on. And people sometimes say, well, you Christians, you don't really follow all God's commands. You pick and choose the ones that you want to follow. Well, that's not accurate at all. They're, they're, the reason that we... Uh, Follow what we do is fairly simple and biblical and well-established throughout church history. Um, and it has to do with, with three types or, or three dimensions, we might say, of commands in the Old Testament. Three dimensions of God's law. So I just want to touch on those briefly so that we, we have that understanding. Um, first is the moral law, what we call the moral law. And this is what we're studying in our series. This is the Ten Commandments. This is the law of God that reflects his character, that is unchanging, like, like God is unchanging. Uh, it's, it's forever in force. It's to be written on our hearts. It's universal. Uh, this is what's summarized in the Ten Commandments. How do we know there's some priority for the Ten Commandments, for the moral law, uh, over against the dietary laws, or the laws about the temple, or refuge cities, or the punishments that are in the Old Testament, and so on. How do we know there's a priority here? Well, there's quite a few reasons. It, it, the Ten Commandments, are the moral law is the first law that gives God gives at Sinai. It's, it's set apart from the rest of God's instructions. It's also set apart, and it's the only part of God's law written on stone. It's set apart by the fact that God, God writes it with, with his own finger. Uh, it's the only part of the law that's put then in the ark, in, in the Holy of Holies, um, symbolizing, I think, that, that, that particularly this is the law that's, that's being atoned for. 
Um, in the New Testament, when Jesus uh, lists the commandments, um, uh, when he's interacting with the rich young ruler, for example, he, he, he lists from the Ten Commandments. Uh, Paul does the same. Uh, we, we read some of that this morning. Uh, the more, it's the moral law that's clearly affirmed over and over again in the New Testament as, as uh, perpetually what we should understand is God's requirement of us. A second category of law in, in the Old Testament is what we call civil law. So the, the Ten Commandments are given in Exodus 20, and then what follows largely in the chapters after that in Exodus is what we call civil law. It's basically application of the Ten Commandments to everyday life, uh, to civil life. Uh, it reflects the need for every society to, to contextualize, if you will, uh, God's foundation of, of morality, what is right and wrong. What, what does it look like in our society to prohibit stealing or lying or murder or violence? Uh, what should the consequences be? What does that look like in this society or that society with, with this technology or that technology? Uh, so in the Old Testament, the civil laws are, are applications that are specific to Israel's time and place. Uh, they're also imposed directly by God over Israel as, as they were a theocracy. Right? God, God ruled directly over Israel, not through a civil government like, like we experience today. Uh, Israel was unique in that way. Israel was unique in that they were a nation, but they were also the church uh, at the same time. Um, so there's a lot that we can learn, though, from Israel's civil laws uh, and should learn about how to apply the Ten Commandments. In fact, our law code in our nation and our municipalities uh, borrows a lot from the civil laws of the Old Testament. Uh, for example, Exodus recognizes, uh, you know, it, it, the Sixth Commandment is stated very sim- simply in the Ten Commandments, but it goes on to recognize degrees of murder, right? That they're not all the same. There's a difference between premeditated and murder that, that is, you know, comes out of spontaneous rage and then a murder that, or a killing that's accidental but negligent and then a killing that's accidental, you know, just purely accidental. Uh, our law reflects that as well in first degree murder, second degree manslaughter and so on. There are other categories. Um, uh, another application of the sixth commandment in, in a sense which says you shall not kill, applies positively that we should protect life. Uh, In Exodus, is required that uh, they put a fence around their flat roofs. We don't typically have flat roofs, but that's very much paralleled in in laws that we have about putting fence around your swimming pool or off your balcony to protect your neighbor, to protect their life. So there are a lot of things that we can learn, whereas the Old Testament civil law features uh, oxen a lot and Sojourners, uh, we, we have to make laws that apply to cars and internet and, and so on. Um, so these were specific to their time and place. They're not binding in exact specifics to us, uh, though they inform how we, we use laws in our society. And then the third category of law in the Old Testament, the third dimension to it, is uh, ceremonial law. Uh, these, are, these are God's commands Uh, that taught about about sin and holiness and atonement and forgiveness. These are the laws that had to do with the temple and the priesthood and cleanliness, uh, festivals, and so on. Uh, All of them pointed to Jesus. They they all illustrated in some way what the work of Jesus would be, who Jesus would be. Um, They, they, in essence, acted out the, 
the separation between sinners and God. They acted out the need for um, a sacrifice in our place to forgive sins and, and God's provision of that. And the New Testament clearly and repeatedly makes clear that, that these laws are fulfilled in Christ. That, that he is the fulfillment of them. So these are abrogated, as we say. These, these laws are not an obligation on God's people moving forward. They, they, they pointed to the work of Jesus. They were, they were temporary. Uh, we now look to Jesus to understand everything that those laws taught Israel uh, about him, about our sin, and, and so on. So the conclusion of, the, of all that, again, is that it's the moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments uh, that, is, that is still our obligation, that describes the good works that we were created in Christ Jesus to do, um, to walk in. Okay, so the second question I want to take up this morning, then, is what, what is the role of God's law in my life? How does it function? Uh, how does it work? Um, traditionally, helpfully, biblically, um, that the church has understood three uses of the law, three functions of God's law in our lives. And I think it's a very helpful and practical way to think about the Ten Commandments and understand how they are God's grace to us. Uh, so I want to take up those, those three. The first, three M's for you. The first you see on your, your outline is a mirror. A mirror. So we use a mirror to evaluate ourselves, right? Do I have some dirt on my face or do I need to shave? Do I have food in my teeth? Is, is my tie crooked or, or whatever? Um, the law as a mirror, we're, we're speaking of it as a mirror spiritually, morally. Uh, most humans tend to evaluate themselves spiritually and morally pretty well, um, pretty highly. The, the statement, I am a good person, uh, is affirmed by the vast majority of people uh, in, in surveys. Um, there was a large survey of Americans a couple years ago where nearly half of Americans affirmed that they were a better person than everyone else they know. That doesn't work out mathematically. <laughs> um, we easily exclude our, excuse ourselves, at least for you know, small failures. We, we easily justify sins based on you know, just how difficult our circumstances are, how difficult other people are. Um, but what is the standard? Right? How can we know we're using a, a pure and undistorted mirror to know what is good and right and, and maybe how needy and depraved we are? Some of you may be familiar with, with uh, Ray Comfort and the evangelism that he does and uh, videos that he makes about that. His, um, his basic method is to use the Ten Commandments as a, a, a starting point to engage people about their need for Jesus. Um, people that he engages almost always initially respond to him by affirming in some way that, that not that they're perfect, but that they're good. They're, I'm a good person, right? God would judge me as a good, worthy person. And he responds then by asking a few simple questions based on the Ten Commandments. So he says, have you ever stolen anything? Of course, everybody says, well, yes. You know, and he says, well, what do, you, what do we call someone who steals things? They say, well, a thief. And he says, have you ever told a lie? Oh, yes, of course. You know, and he said, well, what do, we tell, what do we call people who tell lies? A liar? Uh, have you ever looked at a woman with lust? And he explains Jesus' explanation of that, that that makes us guilty of, of adultery and he goes on to ask, have you ever used God's name flippantly? And, and, and so then he, he says, you know, now you've just affirmed to me, though, that you're a liar, a thief, and an adulterous blasphemer. Uh, do you think that, that God would, would judge you innocent? 
And it's often eye-opening for the, for the people that he's talking to. And that's based on just a very cursory look at the Ten Commandments. Studying God's law, and, and especially in more depth than that, shows the depth of our depravity. As a mirror, it doesn't allow us to evaluate ourselves highly. It shows us how far short we fall of how God created us to be. How far we fall short of his holiness and his standard. It shows us, if we understand it rightly, we've we've broken every command countless times. As we talked about last week, we've offended the very person of God and his lordship countless times. The law is a mirror that shows us, and and more and more as we understand it more deeply, how desperately depraved we are, how desperately in need of God's forgiveness and grace we are. We don't just need some some redirection, a a little bit of help, a little bit of kindness from God, right? Only the perfect obedience and death of Jesus in our place can pay for our rebellion, can wash our, our filthiness, make us acceptable to God. The, the law as a mirror is, is hard. It's, it's painful to look in that mirror, honestly, and, and with the lights turned up. Right? But it's a huge part of what drives us to grace. It's what, it, it, to use a word from last week, again, it's what keeps us from legalism. Right? From thinking that we can, can actually be good. Uh, think that we actually have been good and acceptable to God on our own. It shows us what the law can't do for us. It can't make us right. We have failed. We will fail to meet God's standard for holiness. The, the, a mirror is, is a helpful image in that way as well uh, in thinking about this, in that a mirror only shows you the problem. It only shows you what you need. Right? If your face is dirty, you don't take the mirror off the wall then and, and wash your face with it. Right? It, it points you to the water, to the washcloth. Right? The mirror of the law drives us not to try harder, not to be better, to keep the list better, but it drives us to Christ and our need for him, to faith in Jesus. And, and not just at conversion, but over and over throughout our lives, but to his grace. <clears throat> St. Augustine puts this use of the law this way, the usefulness of the law lies in convicting man of his infirmity and moving him to call upon the remedy of grace, which is in Christ alone. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, in his very illustrated Spurgeon-y way, puts it this way, As the sharp needle prepares the way for the thread, so the piercing law makes way for the bright silver thread of divine grace. Another uh, modern writer puts it this way, says, the first use of the law is to destroy the spiritual narcissist lurking within all of us. I want to think about a couple of implications of that. And again, this is one of the main things I want us to understand today. If the law shows us the depth of our depravity and need for God's grace, it shows us the depth of God's grace and his love. And in fact, we can't see, we can't understand the depth of God's grace otherwise without a careful understanding of of his law. Some people say, again, that to focus on God's law, to focus on sin, well, that's depressing. Uh, Christians are free from that. And so some people just talk about God's grace, never about duty or sin or repentance, thinking they're protecting grace. 
but in fact severely diminishing and cheapening the grace and love of God. Think about it this way. How big a deal, how big a deal is it for you to show kindness and forgiveness to someone who accidentally drives over your flower bed or you know, makes you spill your drink accidentally or even someone who says something mean to you but then realizes it and said, says, I'm sorry. Well, it's not a big deal. It makes you a you know, pretty nice person to be nice to them, to forgive. How big a deal is it for a Holocaust survivor to treat with kindness and to forgive the Nazi commander who slaughtered his family? It's unthinkable, almost. It's extraordinary, perhaps miraculous. Our offenses against God pale in comparison to that latter example because he's God. And so when someone says, you know, to talk about God's law, to preach about sin, that, that's puritanical, it's anti-grace. What, what is it actually, what are they actually saying? They're, they're taking the incomprehensibly massive grace of God in response to our sin and shrinking it down to the equivalent of, you know, being nice to someone who, who ran over your flower bed, as if that's all we've done, and then said Sorry. You know, as if we, all we need from God is a, is a little bit of kindness. We are cosmic rebels who hated God and his ways and his holiness. The scripture says we're enemies, uh, whom he nevertheless has taken into his own family and made us unconditionally children of God. And so the degree to which you understand God's, God's commands as it reflects his character and who he is, the degree to which we understand our sin throughout is the only degree to which we can understand his grace and his law. Without the law, without a depth of understanding of it and, and how it points to our need, we can't see what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul says in Romans 5, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, he says the law increases sin and it, it, it like turns the lights on, right? Cleans the mirror. You see more how, how, how far you fall short. But Paul goes on, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Our understanding of grace explodes as well. You say you have a mild intestinal pain and you refuse to get detailed exam and diagnosis. You end up taking a Tylenol, and it, and it helps. But in fact, you had cancer, and you need surgery. Well, you'd be mildly thankful to someone who gave you a Tylenol, and you felt a little better. You would owe your life to a surgeon who diagnosed you and did life-saving emergency surgery, right? because you're in such a wretched state. Again, some people in trying to protect and exalt grace end up ironically destroying and diminishing the magnitude and depth of God's grace because it becomes simply like a, a Tylenol for minor pain rather than emergency life-saving surgery performed at the cost of your own life for your worst enemy. The, the law helps us to see the, and to view rightly the, the cross. It helps us to see how much the cross cost Jesus, just how much he died for, the depth of sin he willingly and lovingly paid for. So the law as a mirror. Secondly, and just be very brief, this is a simpler point, uh, the law as a muzzle. 
a muzzle. Uh, this is a broad societal use of, of God's law. Um, it, it restrains sin. The idea is, is basically that knowing what is wrong, what is right, what, what sin deserves, is something of a deterrent to sin. Um, it, it's, this is an important um, understanding of a, of a use, a function of God's law, but it's a limited one. Um, law, the law can't change people's hearts. Right? It, it doesn't um, change our hearts. Our hearts are inclined to evil, but to the degree that all humans have a conscience to know something of what is right and what is wrong informs our conscience and shows people the character of God and, and restrains sin to the degree that it points us to the fear of God and, and a desire not to sin against him. Again, that's, that's limited. It's, it's distorted in our world. Uh, but but it restrains sin and pointing to what is wrong, to what's, to what's dangerous, uh, to the degree that people might, might take pause. If, if you're out for a hike and I, we, we run into each other and I say there's a, there's a cliff ahead and it's hard to see, you know, a lot of people would turn around or would take, take some caution uh, at least. So God's law can and does inform law in our society, inform our, our consciences. And then thirdly, Finally, God's, God's law functions as a map, as a map. There are a few different ways to, to put this, that, that I want to put this. Uh, it's a map in that it gives direction for life in Christ now. In Romans 8, Paul writes, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that... The righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He joined us to Christ so that, that we would do the law, so that it would be fulfilled in us. It, 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 you could say it this way, God's, God's commands teach you how to inhabit your union with Christ. How to live in union with Christ. You are united to Jesus. God, that means God's love for Jesus is his love for you. Um, it means Jesus' status as a child of God is your status as a child of God. As an heir of God is your status as an heir of God. That, that's your fundamental identity as a Christian, union with Christ. And the law tells you how to live that out. It uh, shows you what Jesus is like, what the Father is like, and you can now fulfill the law. You, you can now be like your Father because you're united to Christ, because you're enabled by His Holy Spirit. Again, last week, the law is not what makes you a child of God. It, it teaches you how to be one now that you already are. The law is a map for your Christian life. How to be a child of God. How to please your Heavenly Father. This, this use of the law, as, as the third use of the law, as it's known traditionally, uh, is, is only for the believer. That should be obvious. It can only be understood by a believer because it's, it's rooted in grace. It's rooted who you are in Christ if you are. Uh, it's, it's an instruction manual for how to use this world as it's designed, how to relate to God, how to relate to others. And here I want to remind you, as we read earlier, how, how Jesus summarizes the Ten Commandments. How does he summarize the Ten Commandments? Love. Right? Love is the summary of the commandments. Love to God, love to others. Again, because of that, some Christians have concluded, well, we don't need the law. We don't need to study and debate details and duties. Jesus says just love. Right? That's all you need to know. 
But what does that mean? What does it mean to love? What is the content of love? That's a crucial question. It's not obvious or universally understood at all. What of the husband in, in deep depression who believes the most loving thing he can do for his family now is to kill himself? Is that love? What, what of the mother? And we've probably heard this argument multiple times by now. We've concluded the most loving thing she can do for her fetus is to kill it. it must be love. What are the signs in, in people's yards that we see that say love is love is love? All right, we all know what that means, right? It's, it's meant to communicate any kind of sexual attraction or action must be perfectly okay if it feels like love. Because love is love. How do we know what love is? Well, Jesus speaks very clearly to that in John 14. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Or in John 5, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Again, Romans 13, we read earlier this morning. I'll read a couple of verses again. Paul says, owe no one anything except to love each other. Oh, maybe Paul thinks all we need is love. That's all you need to know. He goes on, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The very content of love is spelled out in God's command, in God's character. One uh, writer puts it this way, the commandments are the railroad tracks on which the life empowered by the love of God, poured into the heart by the Holy Spirit, runs. Love empowers the engine, law guides the direction. Another way to think about uh, the, the law as a map uh, is that it gives, it gives security to our lives. Security as if you, you know, have a GPS and you know how to use it, or you have a map. Um, here's an interesting example of this, that, an illustration that Sinclair Ferguson gives. He writes, At the end of my freshman year, I taught in a school for young criminals. Uh, their lives were heavily circumscribed, by, but surprisingly to me, there was an extraordinary esprit de corps, a pride in and common loyalty to the school. So this is a detention facility. He says, at first, this puzzled me. And then I realized these boys knew where they were now. They were safe and safeguarded from themselves and their waywardness. The teachers disciplined with them with affection. Yes, the rules sometimes irked them. They were sinners after all. But they were safe. Some of them even transgressed again to get back to the environs of the school. He said, I understood why, even if I could not condone it. They had care and security there. Uh, the law of God gives us security. As, as a map, the law gives us freedom. It gives us freedom. You're free to be who you were created to be only in union with Christ. Only within the parameters and guidance of the Ten Commandments as we understand how they work with, with God's grace. You know, the lady in Brussels who didn't know how to use her, her GPS, she wasn't free to go pick up her friend. The, the classic illustration of this is a fish, right, that you've probably heard. A fish might imagine that his existence is very restrictive. I wish I could, you know, get out of the water and go see the world. But, of course, out of the water is death to a fish, right? A fish is only free to be a fish in the water. 
maybe you've uh, tried fixing something like I have by thinking, well, I can just do it myself. I don't need the instruction manual. I'll do it my way. Some of you engineers can probably get by fine with that because you intuitively know the rules and the functions of things, but uh, the rest of us can end up stuck, right, messing things up, not free to fix the thing. Um, you men, you are not free to be men, fathers and husbands, uh, as you see fit. Uh, you didn't create manhood or fatherhood or the role of a husband. Uh, to, to use an illustration related to that, uh, marriage is sometimes joked um, as, as bondage, you know, a ball and chain. Um, but in which marriage is there freedom and love and trust and joy? Is it the marriage that, that flaunts God's laws about faithfulness and love and protection and truth and adultery and provision? Or, or is it the, the marriage that embraces and lives within those limits and injunctions to, to, to love, to tell the truth, to be faithful and stringently follows that? That's a marriage in which spouses are free to, to love, to trust. So it's a map for our lives. I, I want to conclude with just a couple of thoughts about application. Many could be made. Perhaps we can discuss more in our, in our class time and our discussion in a bit. Um, but, but two things to leave you with. The, the first one is really similar to what I mentioned. One thing I mentioned last week is that is an encouragement to us to delight in God's law. Delight in God's law as a gift. Uh, what, what a gracious, freeing blessing to have that mirror to Christ that points us to Christ, that, that map for life in Christ. Imagine that you lost your job because you messed up terribly. Or you embarrassed yourself and brought shame on your family and, and so on. But, but in time, you get a prestigious, high-paying job. It has great benefits, and it's a great fit for your family. You have a good and generous employer. It's, it's exactly the situation that, that you would want despite your past failure. Well, you would, you would apply yourself eagerly to know the job, to know the policies, to know the etiquette, the procedures and expectations. You'd, you'd study them, eager to, to appropriately and effectively inhabit your new job. Well, that should be our relationship to God's law. That's how the psalmist can say, I, I love your law. It's my study all the day. We should study it, eagerly follow it as, as a guide to inhabit our identity as co-heirs with Christ, as stewards of all that Christ has given us, as, as people who, despite our gross and shameful failures, have, have the greatest privilege and highest calling available in the universe. And God's law shows us how to serve him well, how to glorify him in that, uh, how to inhabit that calling and identity. And then secondly... A second thought to leave you with is consider how you disciple your children. Consider how you raise your children. It's so easy to correct and guide our kids simply as little moralists, right? Or our grandkids, uh, just to get them to follow the rules, obey, right? Do this because I say so. That's not wrong. Or even do this because God says so. Also not wrong. But our goal is that our children would, would delight not in rule-keeping, but delight in God himself. That they would delight in, in working out their salvation, in Philippians. Not keeping the rules or being a good person, simply. They would live in union with Christ. Our, our instruction of our kids cannot simply be, try harder, be better, do more, stop that. 
right? But must be, be who your baptism says you are. Uh, Be who you are in Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time that we've had to consider your word again this morning and uh, for the way that it instructs us in your grace, uh, including your gift of your law that reflects who you are and who you've created us to be, you've recreated us to be in Christ. We, We do pray that you would help us to grow in our love for your law. Uh, understanding it as as a gift and uh, what you are creating us to be, the the works that you created for us to do in Christ. Um, Lord, give us uh, reflection on these things and application to our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.